0: We are uh, actually coming to the end of this series. We're at the end of John chapter 17, and that is the great high priestly prayer of Jesus. Uh, And so I I think we'll have one more lesson in this series, which will be something like a review. it's a big, long list of these things we really need uh, that uh, beginning in, the, in Paul's letters and then this prayer of Jesus. Um, so the, the, uh, the theory here is if Jesus is praying for us, whatever he's asking for is probably something we really need. And it might be a good idea to pay attention to that. Uh, we're not really that good at determining what we need. We're good at feeling what we need, but there might be a good number of our needs that are outside the realm of feeling. Um, So I get hungry, I need to eat something, but I might not notice that I need to eat some broccoli, some vegetables. I might think I need lots of chocolate cake if I just go according to my feelings. So since we've been children, we have this. We do kind of know that we need to be told what we need, and uh, so this is really just one approach to that idea in in the New Testament, where we're looking at well, if Paul, in inspired scripture, if he prays for something for the church. that's an indication that that's something the church needs and here with Jesus uh, we see Jesus praying for the disciples and for those who will believe through their testimony so that's for everyone who's come to faith in Christ in all of history Uh, and so whatever it is he's praying for must be something we really need Um, So with that in mind, we're coming to the end of this prayer. And uh, in verse 25, it's printed there on your handout. Uh, We read, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known, these disciples have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Uh, So this is our final request, The, the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Now, I... I think grammatically we need to take that as as another thing, so that the the love of the Father for the Son would be in us, and that Christ Himself would be in us. Uh, So we're going to take those one at a time uh, and we're going to think about what is the Father's love for the Son. And we want to look through the Gospel of John uh, the Story for which this is the closing prayer, and see what about the Father's love for the Son? What is this love with which the Father has loved Christ? And so we're going to start by going back to chapter 3. This love of the Father for the Son is mentioned in these three passages, basically. These are the passages where it's kind of emphasized. So in John chapter 3 and verse 34. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Uh, So we're going to notice two things first. How How does the love of God abide in the Son? Well, I think it's in this phrase, he gives the Spirit without measure. The one God has sent, that's the Son, speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So the Father loves the Son, providing to Jesus the man, the incarnate Son, the the total presence of, and influence and abiding power, energy, whatever you might attribute to the work of the Spirit in a man, uh, Christ has without measure. So that it's in absolute totality. The communion of the Son with the Father is by the Spirit. And so the Son... Doesn't speak, Jesus says this repeatedly in the book of John, he said, I'm not speaking for myself, I'm speaking for the one who sent me. And here we have a key in that reality, that this that is the giving of the Spirit without measure. So item number one here in the notes is he gives the Spirit without measure, so that the Son speaks the words of God. So when Jesus speaks, he only says what the Father once said, he also attributes this to his behavior and his actions and his miraculous deeds and everything he does. He says, I don't do anything independently. I only act according to the direction. I only act according to what I see the Father doing. Uh, And that vision is Communicated in the person of the Holy Spirit, given to Christ without measure. And then he goes, and says, then John says, More, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He has given all things into his hand. Jesus says this at the conclusion of the book of Matthew, where he says, All authority has been given to me. Uh, and here in the book of John, The Son has the mandate of the Father. Uh, So he's been trusted with the work of God in the human race uh, completely, all things. And if we go on to read verse 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides or continues on him, Uh, this is an important idea in chapter 3 of the book of John, that the wrath of God is already upon, uh, well, it's universally upon all humanity, and the resolution of that is in trust in the Son, trust in Christ. So, So, Jesus says earlier in this book, God didn't send the Son into the world to judge the world, but the world through him would be saved. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. In other words, he stays judged. Uh, So there's a bit of a repetition. The wrath of God abides on those who don't obey. And here, obey is directly parallel to trust believe in. Uh, And just in the very next chapter, Jesus says, this is the will of God that you believe in the one he sent. Uh, So obey and believe are used kind of interchangeably here. Okay, number two, he has given all things into his hand, especially the matter of eternal life. what I'm going to call the eternal life mandate. Jesus refers to this at various points in the book of John. I have this mandate from the Father and that is to give eternal life to those the Father has given to the Son. That's the commandment of God, the mission, if you will, the commission of Christ is the eternal life of God's sheep. We read in chapter 10. Well, let's go to chapter 10 because that's the next place on our list. (coughs) We're going to read from verse 11. Uh, I am the good shepherd, The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand. is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, And I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me. Oh, here we are with the love of the Father for the Son. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one's taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. That's our mandate word. I have the mandate to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So what is the... Mandate of the Father on the Son, it is this laying down of His life and this taking it up again. The death is death and resurrection uh, for His sheep. <clears throat> and here we read the Father loves the Son because the Son lays down His life for the sheep and takes it up again. And here it's curious, He says of my own initiative, because typically in the book of John, he says, I don't do anything of my own initiative. And even in this context, you got to wonder, how is this of his own initiative if it's a mandate from the Father? Well, he's saying, "I'm I'm exercising my own agency as well in obedience to this mandate from the Father. <clears throat> so the Father loves the Son, because the son lays his down for the sheep, lays his life down for the sheep and takes it up again, freely choosing that, and in doing so fulfilling the eternal life mandate. Um, <clears throat> so the love of the Father for the son is in this instance a reflection of the loving obedience of the son for the father interesting well now if we go on to John chapter 15 and this text is right at the end of the text about abiding in the vine and abiding in Christ and His words abiding in us. And uh, in verse 9 he says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so proved, so proved to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments. you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than Uh, that one laid down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command you. Now, what has he commanded us? Love one another. As he has loved us. And that's important. He doesn't just say love one another. Our love for one another flows from his love for us which flows from the Father's love for him. Uh, So, anyway, let me go on. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all things that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. Now that was repeated in the prayer in chapter 17 that we just read. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would... Remain, that's the same word, abide, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. So, how has the love of the Father worked in the Son? Well, the Son has kept the Father's commandments and so abides in the Father's love. And what was the Father's commandment? Well, it was this eternal life mandate that he lay down his life for the sheep and take it up again and give them eternal life by doing so. And so he's carried out his mission from the Father, and this is an expression of the Father's love for the Son carried through in the Son's love for the sheep. The Son has kept the Father's and so abides in the Father's love. He's dwelling in the Father's love in a way that <clears throat> carries out the Father's will. Hmm. So we could say this like this. The Son most fully enjoys the love of the Father when He reflects it toward others he said that the father loves the son because the son loves lays down his life so the son is fulfilling the father's love for him in being loving toward us this is a very important insight into the nature of the spiritual life. The love of the Father to the Son is the same as the love of the Son for us. And so we experience the love of the Father in and through the love of the Son, which is empowered and directed by the communion of the Holy Spirit. So the whole triune God is involved in the loving humanity of Jesus. Now, all of this is important to note, all of this is made possible by the incarnation, by the fact that Jesus is one of us and is here in person to do these things. To die for us requires him to be a man (laughs) that can die. And to be a man so that he can, in his death, die for us, other humans. Uh, So all of this, the love which the Father Loved the Son. Now Jesus is praying that this love may be in us. Oh. (laughs) Now, if you look at, uh, well, we're going to, let me come to this at the end. (laughs) If you look at John chapter 14, where Jesus talks about our loving Him, you'll see it uh, as a pretty much a mirror image of this very thing where Jesus experiences the love of the Father by the communion of the Spirit and in that experience he is led to fulfill the mandate of the Father and in fulfilling the mandate of the Father to lay down his life and to take it up again he is expressing that love of the Father for him to us So it is utterly fitting for G- when Jesus prays that the love that the Father has for him would be in us, that he says, and me in them, I in them, sorry for my grammar, and I in them, I think it really should say me, but anyway, <laughs> I think English grammar says it should be me because it is subjective. But anyway, we don't need to argue about that. The uh, he's praying that he would abide in us. How does the love of the Father for the Son abide in us? In his own abiding in us. And so this carries us back. This echoes chapter 15 where he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, abide in me, let me abide in you, all of that. So let, let me just sort of step by step how this goes. How does Christ abide? in anyone, and we could review the whole book of John in order to get all of these steps. But the first step is in chapter 1, the Son is the revelation of the Father. The Son reveals the Father. No one has seen God at any time, John says. But the Son, the only begotten of God, He has revealed Him. So, or in chapter 14, where Philip says to Jesus, Well, show us the Father, and then we'll be satisfied with that. And Jesus looks straight, looks him straight in the eye and says, What do you think I've been doing? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Son in the book of Hebrews is the exact representation of the nature of God in a man. He's fully God and fully man. This is the earliest confession of the Christian faith he is completely 100% as God as God, very God of very God and he is absolutely 100% human he's not some kind of hybrid he just has both of these natures in one person so this number one here is the son reveals the father Number two is we see and know the Father in the Son. We see and know the Father in the Son. Now that those are like two sides of the same coin, right? Number three, we experience the love of the Father for the Son. In other words, you think about God the Father loving the man Jesus, his eternal son made human. We experience the love of the Father for the Son in the Son's love for us. That's what we just read about. I lay down my life for the sheep. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish. So people are destined to perish and the giving of the Son by the love of God is how we get out of perishing. So we experience the love of the Father in the Son. And so we come to possess the love of the Father for the Son. And so Christ abides in us. Oh, and number five. Number four, we possess the love of the Father for the Son. Number five, we express the love of the Father for the Son. And Christ is really fully abiding in us when we express the love we've received. It's kind of like the spirit of Christ has worked its way out into our fingertips when we become expressions of His love when we become his agents for this love. Just as Christ, the Jesus, the Son of God, Son of Man, is the agent of the love of God to us, we become the agents of the love of God for others. And that's when Christ is really completely abiding in us. Now, you can get this in more detail in chapter 14 and chapter 15. Jesus says this in chapter 14. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me.
1: Interesting. You
2: uh, know what and
0: what is the commandment in this context? What are his commandments? Love one another as I've loved you. The new commandment I give you, it's right in the context of this. So, uh, and his commandments, plural, are only details on that commandment. Why shouldn't you lie? Well, because telling the truth is loving. That's we have trouble figuring that out, but that's the case. Well, so he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Now, <clears throat> he who loves me will be loved by my Father. So how does the love of the Father, or the Son, how does that come to, to us Well, we love him, and he responds to that by loving us. And I will, and we will come. Oh, sorry. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him. So, Father and Son respond to our love expressed in our obedience and will disclose myself to him. Now, you couldn't have loved him in the first place if he hadn't already disclosed himself to you in one form or another. This is a cycle, just so you'll notice. Uh, Judas said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Okay, so Jesus answers and says to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. That's, he's repeating what he just said. And my Father will love him. That's what he just said in verse 21. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. So how does God come to abide in us in this loving fellowship? Now, uh, he goes on. He who does not love me doesn't keep my word. The word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So my word is the Father's word. Those who love me keep that. Those who don't, don't. The determining factor is, do they love him or do they not love him? And what is the determining factor in whether someone loves him? You might say, well, this started to sound like, well, if I obey him, that's loving him. No, obeying him is the expression of love for him. So the love comes first. And where do we get this? Well, he, we've already said this. The son reveals the father. We see the Father in the Son. We experience the love of the Father for the Son in the Son's love for us. We come to possess that love and then we come to express that love. And what verse chapter 14 says is, then more of that. When we express the love of God, the, God reveals his love more completely to us. And so we could read in first John written by the same guy, we could read this we love because he loved us first. And that's the, the step that's in at the beginning before we read verse 21 of chapter 14. He loves us, we love him, because we love him, we love him you, and that expression of his love is an expression of love for him in in sharing it with you. How do I love Jesus? By loving you. It's it's a two-way street. Well, it's a two-channel stereo. I don't know how to say that, but... Uh, And the Lord is responsive to that, according to chapter 14. So apparently he's letting us, he's revealing his love to us. And then when we respond in it by showing it, he gives us a bit more. He gives us a bit more. And one of the things I think you could also read into this is say from Philippians chapter 3 where Paul says you know the thing i really want more than anything is to know Christ to know Christ is the prize of all prizes even you know i even want to know the fellowship of his sufferings he says i want to i want to know Christ to the extent uh, uh, to know what's going on in Christ that leads him to die for our sins. (laughs) And so Paul wants to engage in the, the life of sacrificial love. Why? Because it's a way of getting to know Jesus. To know his love... And then, so what, what should lead you to love others sacrificially, to do something for the benefit of someone at your own expense? Because that's how you get to know this sort of love, which is at the very heart of our eternal life. It's in letting go of life, in, in letting go of life that we find life. That's how Jesus said it. It's in living sacrificially for the sake of others that we experience life more fully. That we are living in the eternal life He died to give us. If we go on to chapter fifteen, this whole passage on. I'm the vine, you're the branches, abide in me. Abiding in me, you bear fruit. Abide in me and I in you. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the true vine, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit or apart from me, you can do nothing. It's just like he's repeating himself. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, people do all kinds of things apart from Christ. But here's the deal. Whatever is done apart from Christ is nothing. So just you being a good person is not the point. There are lots of good people apart from Christ. And here's what all their goodness amounts to. Nothing. It is the only righteousness that matters is the righteousness that is a reflection of the love of God that is born from the experience of the love of God and shares that experience into the lives of other people. Uh, Other things you do apart from him, nothing. That's the judgment of Jesus here. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. They gather them, cast them into the fire, they're burned. Now, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You see, if you abide in him and his words abide in you, what you wish is what he wishes. Well, so we begin to reflect this thing that Jesus was a perfect uh, model of, which is, I do what I see God doing. I act on his guidance and direction, and I never do anything else. My Father is glorified by this. He says that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And here's the key. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So, how does the Son abide in the Father's love? He lives out the Father's love. So the love of God for Him is perfectly perfectly reflected by Him toward us and most perfectly in His death. Uh, This is uh, the reference to Romans chapter 5. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, still against him, Christ died for us. So the love of God is perfectly expressed in Jesus' fulfillment of the eternal life mandate in laying down his life and taking it up again for our sake. And so he says, now this same principle can operate in your life where you so dwell in this ridiculous love that God has showered on you in Christ and his sacrifice for you, you can become expressions of that same love it's kind of like Jesus says, look, this is how I've loved you. Now, if you really want to understand it, try it. If you really want to understand this sacrificial love which led me to the cross for your benefit, try it. Do some of it. Now, if you love him, then you do try to love others. That's that's what he says. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, those who love me, keep my word. Those who don't love me, don't. And so we become expressions of uh, of his love. And so this is the way in which God responds to this prayer of Christ in chapter 17. In Ephesians chapter 3, this leads us back to what might have been the very first prayer we looked at in this teaching series where Paul is praying for the church. What does he ask for? For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory okay so here's the request grant that god would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so he's praying for the empowering ministry of the holy spirit in us But this has a purpose. What does the Spirit do in us when He empowers us? So that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. So, the strengthening power of the Holy Spirit is (laughs) to give you the strength to become a place where Christ abides. Apparently you don't have the strength in yourself for Christ to dwell in your heart. So the Spirit empowers you to be strong enough for Christ to occupy your heart. Oh, yeah, thanks for saying that because here's the next thing. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to
2: may be able
0: this is a thing that requires the strengthening ministry of the spirit in you for you to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth length height depth to know the love of christ this reminded me of the that that movie uh Jack Nicholson, Tom Cruise, uh, all uh, a few good men. And uh, Cruise is cross-examining Jack Nicholson and he says to him, I want the truth. And Nicholson's line is, you can't handle the truth. Well, this text tells you, you can't handle the love of Christ. If you're going to handle the love of Christ, you need the Spirit to work in you to be able. The love of Christ is so magnificent, it will just flatten you if you are not empowered by the Spirit of God to receive it and to really maybe start to get it, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth, to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. In other words, this thing you can never really know completely, you will begin to know if the Spirit strengthens you to get it. Oh my goodness. (laughs) And that is what Jesus is praying for in chapter 17 of the book of John, that the love with which the Father has loved the Son would be in us. And it abides in us just as it did in Him by the giving of the Spirit, by the ministry of the Spirit to strengthen us. Here's something I've noticed about, well, being a sacrificially giving person. I find that very hard. To, do, to go to some trouble... To do something that's good for someone without any expectation of return. Without needing them to appreciate it.
1: <laughs>
0: that, is, that is not our normal fallen human way. I don't just like doing that. I, if I'm going to do that, it means that the Spirit of God has to let me see His love for me and the overwhelming magnitude of that moves me to be a reflection of that same thing and it's for His glory right I, I, I don't want you to know how loving I am I want you to see in me how loving He is and that is a big difference. I, I could try to be more loving. Ugh. I find I'm not even that interested in me trying to be more loving. But when I catch a glimpse of his love, I find I must help you to see it too. Yeah, I, you, you need to see this thing. Yeah. And so, this is something we really need. <laughs> something we really need is the love of God in us. Uh, and
2: so, Jesus prays. Our own selfishness keeps us from... I mean, you think our love scale and go up, and our selfishness scale and go down. Zero. Right. love scale keeps going up. In fact, what
0: happened in the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned, the, the only way they came to disobey was to turn away personally from the fellowship of God, the loving fellowship of God, to become independent. Yeah. And so becoming independent is becoming alienated. And we have another word for that, dead. And so uh, this is this thing Jesus is praying for is what God intends in human beings in creation and what was given up in sin was this understanding the love of God and expressing that love in the created universe uh, to be his image bearers well Jesus is his perfect image bearer a man who totally and perfectly expresses the love of God and does so in his redeeming sacrifice, which restores the possibility to us, which restores the opportunity for us to trust in, look to God for the provision of this love and become expressions of it. Uh, And so uh, this... In, in a very real sense, this is like Jesus praying for the restoration of the garden in the human race. God will say yes to this prayer. And we have, even in this life, when we haven't yet come to the fully resurrected condition that Christ provides, even now, though, we have this opportunity when we see him, we become like him. Uh, when we understand his love, we become loving. Well, that's all I got. What do you want to Anything to discuss or questions? I've got
2: a question
1: that may not be appropriate. Mm-hmm. What's happened to all these 150,000 Russians that are dead? Are they just. Because they're mostly Russian Orthodox. Mm.
0: Well, the, uh, the only question about someone's eternal place is a question of did they trust in Christ? And that's a personal uh, determination. Uh, so I don't, you know, we can't, I can't make any kind of blanket judgment. I mean, someone could be, I, I, might think that someone who is a faithful member of the Russian Orthodox Church might have come to trust in Christ. Anyone might have at any place. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think we could say it one way or another uh, as, a, as a
2: rule. Um,
0: but the, what Jesus says quite clearly is... Uh, those who trust him have eternal life, those who don't, don't. Well, what you're saying is that there's
1: 100,000 people who have gotten some good eternal life because they sure don't get it in heart.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, and our, what determines our eternal status is our relationship to God in Christ. Uh, so, yeah. Now, those who have died are in one condition or another, and uh, the Scripture says it's pointed to men to die once, and after this, the judgment. There's, there's, These are things that are determined one way or the other in a person's life on earth. Um, so...
1: Well, uh, What about this evil thing? How does this really function? And why? it mm. Evil. It's 150,000 people. It? Yeah. Okay. how does that work? We talked about trusting in the Lord to essentially save us. Because that's what we're having here. And our knowledge of being saved really is pretty terrestrial. Uh, we're here on the surface, and this is what we know, and so we talk about being saved. You know, we're we're talking about keeping the family and so on. But these people didn't get to do that. That wasn't their saving. They, they had to be contented to believe. And that's what they're asking us to do, to believe don't
0: in the afterlife of here. Well, and I guess our our I I think from a biblical point of view from the from a biblical perspective uh, the condemnation of death is universal. So this is the beginning point uh, that every human being is under God's judgment, and uh, the wages of sin is death. No one seeks God, the Scripture says more than once. Um, we've all turned away, Isaiah writes. Everyone is turned away from God. And In turning away from God, we died. And so we are already, as we saw in 1st John, our natural born condition is uh, destined to perish. Judged already. If we ask, well, when did God judge anyone? The answer is, in the garden. And if we ask, when did God judge everyone? The answer is, in the garden. And so, uh, What we have in Christ is the opportunity of reconciliation. And so in Christ, uh, because of his death for our sake, we in union with Christ are raised to life again. What does that mean? That means our alienation from God is reversed so that now we have the opportunity to walk in fellowship with God and we have a word for that, alive. And so uh, every human being who has ever lived has died, one way or another. So I, you know, one way to view this, you know, problems of holocaustic events like, these hundreds of thousands of people dying in this war or millions of people dying in the big war, you know, or millions of people dying from a virus that we invented ourselves most likely. Uh, Well, these are only various ways in which people die. But nobody's exempt. Uh, now, some of us get a more pleasant life. Some of us get a longer one. None of them are very long. And so, the, the to me, the inescapable reality of human existence is the judgment of death. And so what is that unescapable? The gospel, the good news, is that God has provided an escape. And that escape comes in the Son of God made flesh, who offers His Himself as a sacrifice for sin. And so reconciles us to God. And in that reconciliation is life restored. Because life from all time only happens from God. So if you're disconnected from God, you're disconnected from life. You're, you're you live in a dying state. So <clears throat> Whether we're talking about, I mean, we could pick our millions of people. Billions of people have died. What happened to them? The answer to that question is the thing that happens to everyone unless it was interrupted by restored fellowship with God in Christ.
2: Which is really God's business, too. God's in the business of saving people.
0: Well, Jesus says, "I didn't come to condemn the world; I came, to, to, you know, to to provide eternal life."
1: There's still a lot of unanswered questions. <laughs> I know when they really <laughs> and, you know, and everybody thinks about it. What happens to kids that uh, half a year old or something that mm-hmm. rocked on their head? They they never understood God. What happened to people in Africa that nobody's ever heard about? What happened to the middle of the same, they all of a sudden come right before death? And, oh, and, mm-hmm. and say, okay, I accept or not. It's so much that we look at it, we all on my whole same and most important thing. In one Christian life, is only one thing that's salvation. And you got to get that. A lot of people, once they get to that point, they are deviated away from it by saying, "I know that I'm going to be that because I've done these things. that mm-hmm. will get me that." That is a big misconception of the human race. It's is what they do. That has nothing to do with it. But they don't understand it. The better I am, more time they go to church, play the piano. I'm going to get there.
2: It will not be too late. But you know, the thing that well, it helps me is it's God that enables us, any of us, to be saved. Not us. It's Him. In Russia, in China, anywhere. It's God's enabling. Otherwise, we never see it. It's not me and my, my, it's not I didn't get scared into loving Christ. He came
1: he doesn't do it to everybody. Pardon me. mean? Does he do that
2: to everybody? Apparently not. Well, that's up to him. These people know this story. So, these people have a the and they have this story. Mm-hmm. That's what they do with Maybe they don't have a force
1: book. they yeah. if you Believe in or I believe that they're safe. Mm-hmm. You know, that somewhere they don't belong
0: well I'm, we don't know I mean we're trying to answer a question that's not our question to answer I, you know it's uh, the, the scripture says very plainly that uh, every, no one comes to Jesus unless the father draws him that everyone who the father draws comes that and that the Father doesn't draw anyone that ends up not showing up. And that if anyone comes to Christ, Christ never turns anyone down. Uh, so there's the operation of the sovereign plan of God in all of these things. And we are in way over our heads. So the the one one problem we have, though, is... We have this idea of justice. We think there are innocent people. And all these special cases you mentioned, Bob, are cases where we think that person must be innocent.
1: For instance, in the days of the the people used to like that,
0: So, the scripture says, the scripture says, no, there, no one's, no one's in, in Adam all died. That's, the Bible says that. Now, I don't, I might not like it that the Bible says that, but it's not unclear. Uh, now, When we think of some of these special cases, though, I personally, uh, well, let's take an infant who dies. I think there's some indication in Scripture that because that infant never had any consciousness to make a decision, then that infant is included in the body of Christ. That's what I actually believe. But I have to admit that that is kind of a hopeful belief. I would say the same thing about people of diminished capacity. Um, You know, where they're not really able to, they're not able to formulate faith. Okay, well, then how does such a person, how does that infant or that uh, disabled person Uh, how are they saved? Assuming they are. The, The sacrifice of Christ is applied to them. There isn't any other provision. And so I like to believe that the sacrifice of Christ is applied in certain cases when people can't consciously formulate
2: faith. You a child in mm-hmm. to it, yeah. What, you know what helps me through that? It's how big is your God? Mm-hmm. Is he this big? And he can't see those people in Russia because he's only here? Or is he this big? And maybe he sees us in the US, so but he can't see that wall. Or is it this big? Or is he that big? And when I stand and I look at the stars in the sky and they disappear into the oblivion, and I look at the sand on the shore and If I look at everything, what it tells me is God is way bigger than I can possibly comprehend. And secondly, if I look at the sacrifice on the cross, he's way better than anything I can comprehend. And so where that takes me to with all your questions, I trust him with his creation that he made. The way he made it, yes, there's evil, which, which drives us crazy, but can we trust him with
1: it?
2: Can we trust how big he is and how loving he is and how kind he is and how deep his love? Yes. And with that I can't rest.
0: Well, and I can leave certain mysteries in the mystery category if I believe God is uh, good. Yeah. Uh, and I've My own personal conviction is there's only one really satisfactory proof of the goodness of God. If I look around the world and I see 150,000 people whose lives are sacrificed by some
1: ridiculous man's ego...
0: If I look around the world and see starving children or the earthquake or the blah, 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 I might have a really hard time. In fact, I don't think I, I well, I can find good stuff. I can find a nice fellowship of men enjoying a really satisfying breakfast together. That's good. Is that a sufficient proof to say God is good, I find there's really only one sufficient proof that enables me to say with a straight face that God is good. And that is the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. And in that provision, God's goodness is decisively proven. Uh, so, um, because Jesus himself says, look, here it is. Anybody who comes can have it. So, uh, the, the reality of the love of God is demonstrated in Christ. That's just what we've seen this morning in the book of John. That the, How do we come to know God? and thereby come to know God as a God of love? The answer is in the life, death, resurrection, I could go on and say inters- uh, ascension, intercession, expected return of Jesus.
1: You just did a whole thing about the love of God, being in Jesus, and Jesus in God. And then by extension, that was into us. Yeah. Right? I got that So, right. It's all good to know you basically sound. Still questionable. <laughs> Is it possible that these instances of earthquakes and disasters and horrors, which we all know, It's basically a calling on us to demonstrate our love for those people. Is it possible that if we ignore the earthquake in Turkey to say uh, cause that don't have to to don't bother me about that? That that is a a denial of the love of God but by yeah. like accepting some sort of impetus to react positively, I don't want to say responsibility, but an impetus to react positively, is that not showing our love and showing the existence of that love of God in us? I would say, yeah, yes. Now, the,
0: the, uh, I, would, I would say this is one among a vast multitude of such opportunities. And so the people I'm most able, or, you know, uh, my, my best opportunities are the people around me but in the modern age people are much more around us than you know in those days not too long ago when there could be a massive earthquake in turkey and we'd never know well now that does present before us an opportunity for the expression of this reality and so uh yeah if we if we we can we can take that opportunity or not. Well, Jesus says, "Look, if, if you're if this reality is happening in you, you you become the sort of person who takes the, those kind of opportunities." So
1: then is it an opportunity? Sorry. So then, is it an opportunity or is it an obligation?
0: I don't see any necessary distinction between those two things. If I, I. I'm not judged according to my deeds if I'm in Christ. I'm judged according to his deeds. So I'm completely at liberty. And I think, well, if I'm at liberty to demonstrate the nature of his love, uh, well, whether, whether I consider that an obligation or an opportunity that it doesn't matter. I, it's a it, it's the sort of it's a sort of irresistible opportunity, and so I can't not do it. And it is a commandment. Uh, but all the commandments of God in Christ become are turned from, from obligation to opportunity all the commandments of god in christ are turned from burdensome uh, obligation that's a pretty good word to positive possibility in in my apart from christ life i i can understand that it's good to be loving and i can i I can only be frustrated in my efforts, and I can only experience the law of God, if you will, as law. In Christ, I experience the law of God as good guidance and as positive opportunity. It's like, well, if I, if I let's just take one example. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, nobody on their wedding day, or at least it would be really odd for someone on their wedding day to be uh, thinking about how one day they hope to cheat on this person. Nobody wants to commit adultery because they love their spouse. And yet people do come around to committing adultery all the time. And the, the question then is, well, how does... How does the love of God operate? The love of God operates in marital faithfulness, in expression of love for your spouse. Um, and in the, in the burden of the law, the law judges us. In the liberty of Christ, all the judgment has been carried out already in Christ. There's no judgment left for me, so I'm free. The scripture says, well, if you're free, then why don't you just keep on sinning? And the answer to that question is because sinning is stupid and ridiculous. Sinning is insane. Sinning is the thing you were saved from. So that doesn't make any sense. Give yourself over to God for the purpose of of righteousness. He doesn't say, in in answering that question, that's in Romans chapter 6, by the way, He doesn't say, well, if you sin, God's going to judge you. He doesn't say that. He sort of doubles down on grace. And he says, because of the grace of God, sin makes no sense. So now if we think of that positively, if I have an opportunity to share the love of Christ in the world, well, that is an obligation. It's part of the law. The law is love your neighbor as yourself. It's a commandment. And yet, because I'm in Christ, that commandment operates on me as an opportunity, as a positive opportunity, and not as a burdensome obligation. We were talking about the old theological principle of the third use of the law here, in case anyone's curious.
1: Okay, well, we've gone more than an hour, so let's uh, let's call it quits.